Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. I had a wonderful, wonderful time. And I would say I was just sort of off and running after that because there was nothing really negative about my aloneness at all. There was absolutely nothing. If anything, it was like really liberating and empowering to be by myself and do what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. And wherever, for however long, it was just the greatest time. is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Charlotte Simpson, a.k.a. The Traveling Black Widow. She is a retired guidance counselor and special education teacher. After losing her husband of 31 years, she decided to make solo world travel a central part of her retirement life and has now been to over 80 countries. She documents her journey on Facebook and Instagram at Traveling Black Widow, where she currently has over 13,000 followers on Instagram alone. Charlotte has been featured in Condé Nast Traveler, Essence, Travel Noir, AARP, and many other publications. When she's not traveling, she volunteers as a court-appointed special advocate for children in foster care and to help high school students learn English as a second language. Shar, welcome to the show. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for inviting me. I am so excited to have you here. Let's just start off this conversation by setting the scene and talking about where we are doing this interview from. I am actually in the mountains of Asheville, North Carolina today on the east coast of the United States. And where are you today, Shar? Well, I wish I was in Asheville, but I'm in the flat plains of Indiana in Indianapolis in my home. That's awesome. I want to ask you maybe if we can just start all the way back and just give some context on where you grew up, where are you originally from? And as you were growing up, how did your interest in travel originally start developing when you think back? Well, I'm originally from Rockford, Illinois, which is uh, about 80 miles northwest of Chicago, small town near Wisconsin and sort of on the way to Iowa. And 
I was raised by my mom, who was divorced, and I attended Catholic schools, K through 12, although I was not Catholic, but my mother thought it would be a good education. And so that has a big, big impact, I think, on just my whole outlook on life and the world. But my travels began with my grandparents. My grandfather Every summer, he lived there in Rockford also, and in the summers, he would go back to Alabama to check on property and do some repairs and all that with his property that he had there in his hometown. And um, so my sister, my little sister and I would go with him, and actually there would normally be a car full of people because a lot of people, a lot of the black people in Rockford were from his town in Alabama. And so inevitably, you know, he would offer rides to people and they would be in the car too. So we were just really jam packed in there, all of us black people heading back to Alabama. During the time there was the Jim Crow laws, which was a segregation that made the trip really, really fascinating to my sister and me because we were little kids in the North where things were pretty open up and available to us. But every year we got sort of this preparatory talk from my grandfather about once we got into Southern Illinois, that things were going to change and don't be uh, smart alecky or rude or really just don't even say anything to white people. Just sort of stand there with him, do what we were told and just really just be well-behaved kids. Because when we did have to stop on the highway on our way down, once we were out of Illinois, you crossed the river and we're into Kentucky. And once you got in Kentucky, whenever you stop someplace, my grandfather would pull up to the gas pump and ask if they had a restroom. And uh, do you have a restroom for colored? He always referred to black people as colored and, and a lot of black people did then. And probably 80, 90% of the time they say, nope, we don't have one. Occasionally they might say, no, we don't allow colored, but there's a field out back there behind the store. You can go back there. So then we would buy our gas there if they would let us buy, go to the bathroom. But anyhow, the trip was, we, not only were we not allowed to go to bathrooms along the way, a hotel was absolutely out of the question. And the drive was probably about a 13, because we were going to northern from northern Illinois into the northern part of Alabama. So I suppose it's probably about a 13, 14 hour drive that you just had to make straight through because there we definitely couldn't stay at a hotel. The whole way down, I will never forget. And every every summer, we look forward to seeing this one hotel in Tennessee. And it was just a big, maybe two or three story building, big square, two or three story building, and a big sign out front that said Colored Hotel. There was no grass in front of it. It was just really pretty much a hot mess. But it was the only place that we would have been able to stay if we had needed to stop at a hotel, but we never stopped. My grandfather just made the drive straight through. And again, we were from the North where things were open. And while, you know, you would encounter some people that might be a little rude or unpleasant, it certainly wasn't like Alabama. We would go downtown um, every afternoon. We'd like to go for ice cream when my grandfather got finished with um, working on his property and stuff. And we'd go for ice cream. When we get to the ice cream stand, there was a sign in front said white. And then in the back of the ice cream shop, there was a sign that said colored. And so all the black people would be in line back there to get their ice cream. When there was no line at the front part, the uh, the clerk would come back there and, and wait on whoever she had time to wait on. So getting the ice cream cone was a humongous deal because 
you were waiting in line with all these other black people and you always had to wait until all the white people were served and the lady could come back and get your order. It was just so different and so hard to understand as little kids, but it made for sort of an adventure. So anyway, you know, we did that every day. Uh, My grandfather went, would always go see this man that he had worked for when he was a kid just doing errands. Because he dropped out of school, or not dropped out, he just had to leave school when he was in third grade. And he began working for this white landowner. And he would, the landowner would pay him with a little sack of whatever little parts of their dinner they weren't going to be eating. So sometimes he would take home, like if they were having maybe fried chicken, then he would take home the chicken feet and the head and occasionally a back, which would be a big deal to have a chicken back. But he would take this sack of chicken parts home to his mom and she would concoct something for their dinner. So every year when we'd go down, we'd go over to see this man because my grandfather still appreciated how helpful he had been to him and how he had encouraged him to go ahead and go north when the uh, companies came down there looking for workers. But he would tell us, you know, when we went to see him to just stand there and be quiet and don't ask him any questions and just don't be staring him in the face and all this. And it was sort of strange, too, because we would see that our grandfather had turned into this real submissive, odd kind of fellow looking down at the ground the whole time he would talk to the man. So we just really didn't understand it at all, just knew that that's how things were when we went to Alabama. It was fun because the man had a peach orchard, and so we'd pick peaches and, and eat fresh peaches and go get our ice cream in the evening. And so for us, it was a huge deal. Black people didn't do a lot of travel back then. I would venture to say from most of the people I knew in Rockford that it was pretty much like that for everyone, that they were going back down south somewhere to visit family for their travel. And when they left Rockford, They were prepared uh, with all their food in the car. We all, pretty much everybody packed the same thing. And you could talk to people now. They all packed the same thing, which was in a shoebox. You had fried chicken. You had some boiled eggs, maybe some grapes or something, and some slices of bread. And that was just the black meal in your shoebox that you carried when you went south. And then as you got older... Char, I know that your mother was an activist with the NAACP. And as you grew up and you got more social and political and historical context on the Jim Crow South, and how did you process that experience and what was the impact that that ended up having on you moving forward in life? Well, it definitely had a huge impact, and I could always understand why my mother felt it was so important for things to change in the South, because also when we did go South in the summer, in the month of August, we normally went, and the kids there, the Black kids would be back, and all the kids would be back in school, but Black kids, the schools were totally segregated. So the schools that were provided for Black kids were really They were just next to nothing. I would go with my cousin who was my age. I'd go with her to school. And when she was in like second, third, fourth grade, her school was in a church in just a big, actually a small church, sort of what you picture in a country church, maybe like 10 pews on each side of a a center row, a center aisle. And she was in, say, second grade. Well, the kids in second grade would have a couple rows of seats. And then the next couple pews might be third grade. 
and so on. So like K through eight, everybody was in this church in a couple rows and this teacher was sort of roaming around or there, maybe there was a teacher on the other side of the room too. But the books you could tell, even as a kid, I recognized these books were really raggedy and nothing like, you know, what I would see at my school. So when I'd go home and my mother would be into her involvement with NAACP and working toward equal rights and equal schooling and desegregating the schools, I really, really, even as a small kid, understood what that meant because I had been in one of those schools. And when you think back as well, just in general, growing up and the impact that your mother had on you, as well as your your grandparents, for that matter, what were some of the biggest influences that your mom and your grandmother had on you that you were able to then take forward in terms of impacting how you live your life today? Well, I think the big one for me and really, I think for my generation of black people, I would say is education because we knew that we had to have a good education. And and ideally, we really had to go to college in order to be able to live a life beyond working, cleaning someone's home. My mother had gone to college for a year. And when she moved north, she was working cleaning homes for basically my whole life. My grandmother worked cleaning homes. That's pretty much what they did back then. So, but they did know, and there were some Black people, you know, around the country that did go to college, but for the most part, even in the North, it was really rough. So I knew the importance of education. I knew the importance of just the power of knowledge and just being good at whatever you did and having to be better the white people and whatever you might be doing, because even if you were cleaning houses and maybe if a a white lady came along who was cleaning houses, then my grandmother and my mother could get booted out and replaced by a white woman to clean a house. So it was just always that, that you had to be excellent at the things that you did. Well, I know that you have then subsequently dedicated most of your adult life to working with kids in various educational capacities. You were a special ed teacher. You were a guidance counselor for your career. And now in retirement, you're still volunteering as a court appointed special advocate for foster kids. You're helping kids learn English as a second language. And that's really been, I think, one of the biggest themes over the course of your life. Can you talk a little bit about your passion for working with kids and why that's been so important to you and what you've gotten out of those experiences? Well, because I guess I've always worked with kids because I knew how the nuns were life-changing for me at, at Catholic school and all that they instilled in me that enabled me to rise into the middle upper middle class, and which I would not have been able to do without my education. And so I ended up getting my master's degree in guidance and counseling because I really wanted to help kids find their way and to get educated, however that might be for them, because it's not for everyone to go to college. And there can be a, a lot, there are a lot of wonderful careers and there are different talents and gifts that kids have, some of which don't direct them toward a university. And so I really wanted to help kids find their way in life and to just end up with the best life that they could possibly live, be that going to a vocational school, a university, 
or whatever it might be, but just higher education in some form. Well, in addition to all of the work that you've done with other people's kids, you've also raised your own daughter, of course. And I wanted to ask at this point in your life with all the kids, including your own that you've worked with, what are your biggest tips for parents on how to raise amazing kids? Well, sort of just said that recognizing the individuality in your kids and that even though you might be a college grad and so you really want your children to all go to college and graduate and that's the only route that you can see for them to success, it really may be that your child is gifted in some other area or has some other talent that would uh, serve them well in life and give them the gratification and the joy that they should get out of life and not just go to college and then end up majoring in something they don't really want to do just to please you. Although I will qualify that and say that I did encourage my daughter to get an education. She was very, very academically inclined and and really enjoyed, you know, doing schoolwork and studying for tests and all that. But I did encourage her and I have encouraged many students of mine over the years that you do sort of want a reliable backup in what you're doing. And normally that's going to be education. So if you have some gift that as a rule does not really doesn't work well for making an income, you know, as those starving artists will also do something education wise so that you will be able to make a living as you pursue this other side passion. This generation now, the the Gen Zs, they strictly go with passion and I, I sort of admire them. A lot of them are doing very well with it. But during my work time, In a way, we didn't really encourage kids so much to strictly pursue their passion. It was a little bit about, you know, having something to fall back on. Well, I also want to ask you about your marriage, because you seem to have cracked the code on how to have a really amazing marriage. And I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about your husband, what made him so special and what now, in your opinion, are the keys to a truly great marriage? Well, marrying a truly great person, (laughs) that's a biggie. That helps a whole lot. And I think really working at it. I just read a post yesterday and a girl who's on her honeymoon and she said, um, marriage is not an accomplishment. And I thought, oh, my gosh, is it ever an accomplishment? Oh, my goodness, you clearly are on a honeymoon because this is going to be the most work you've ever done in your life other than college. And I do think, you know, going into it with an attitude of we are going to work at this. We're going to do whatever is necessary. And I always carried with me this priest in one of our religion classes in our senior year. We had to take this marriage course. And in the course, I remember the father saying that marriage is not 50-50. Marriage is 100-100. And many, many times you are giving in 100. And other times, you know, you're you're getting the full hundred. The other person's giving in a hundred. But I think it did really help a lot to know that it is 100, 100, that you've got to give 100 percent of the time, give your best and your all and, and your sacrifices or whatever, and not to look at that you can compromise because sometimes you can't compromise. You're going to just have to give in. Right. Can you also talk about the importance of travel 
in your marriage and how the two of you grew together through shared travel experiences? Well, my husband liked to travel and I always did too. And when we started dating, he mentioned one time that he would like to go to the 50 states. And at that time, he had probably been to maybe about 10 states. I probably had been to about 10. And as being the goal setter that I am, I thought, boy, if we get together, boy, we're definitely going to see the 50 states. That's just going to be one of the first goals in our marriage. And so sure enough, when we did get married, we went to Mexico for a honeymoon and went all throughout Mexico, had a wonderful time there. And every year, our anniversary was on July 2nd, and we deliberately got married on that holiday weekend because we knew then we'd always have like a three-day weekend and we could travel somewhere for our anniversary. So just right off the bat, travel was in the plans for us. And we did end up going to all 50 of the states. My husband loved to fish and he loved the outdoors. He had been a biology major and he loved science. He loved the outdoors, loved animals. And so we went to a lot of national parks and did experience just some wonderful times and with the fishing and and sightings of animals from all over. I mean, Yellowstone was just the most magnificent place probably in the United States that we ever went. So we grew with the travel in that on our way home from a trip, we were already talking about that next place that we should go and maybe, you know, Southwest, maybe Northeast, whatever it would be. And so we were always planning, you know, we always had travel plans in mind. And then we had things that we wanted to learn in our travels with us both liking animals so much, you know, different regions of the country, they're different animals. We were always learning together and always planning together and had something to look forward to. And then after your husband's passing, can you talk about your path to deciding to begin a journey of solo world travel? What was that path like for you? Well, I had never planned to travel by myself. I never really pictured myself needing to travel alone. And when he died, my daughter and I did take a few trips together that Christmas after he died. We did a trip to Spain, Portugal, and Morocco. And it was a group trip. And there were a couple ladies and a priest on the trip who were traveling solo. And so I really found myself observing them a lot to see how in the world are they by themselves? How can they stand it? And it was Christmas time and New Year's Eve and all that. And I just thought it was just the oddest thing. And so I was always asking the three of them, just about their time and like, well, what do you do when you go back to your room by yourself? How do you feel? Are you scared? Do you go out and go for a walk? And so I, I was almost interrogating <laughs> the people that I would meet who were traveling alone. And then we took another trip. And on that one, once again, there were solo travelers. And so I would just ask them, well, nobody ever had anything negative to say, ever. They always were having a great time. They loved being able to do what they wanted to do. And everyone always said to me, you will love it. You just have the kind of personality that you will love traveling alone. Just try it. Don't be afraid. Just do it. You'll see that you will just love it. So sure enough, one summer, well, I tried to get some girlfriends. I wanted to go to Italy and I tried to get a few friends and they're getting a new car, getting new carpet or taking a class or whatever and weren't able to go. And I just thought, well, Italy seems safe enough. I think I'll just try it by myself. 
And so I did. And it was 15 days in Italy, touring the country. And I went, I had a wonderful, wonderful time. And I would say I was just sort of off and running after that because there was nothing really negative about my aloneness at all. There was absolutely nothing. If anything, it was like really liberating and empowering to be by myself and do what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. And wherever, for however long, it was just the greatest time. That's amazing. I want to definitely ask you about some of your travel experiences because you and I have been to a lot of the same places and I would love to hear your experiences. I know you have spent, first of all, some time in South Africa, which I was just there for about two months last year. I spent my birthday in Stellenbosch and was based in Cape Town. That's a really special place for me. I would love to hear, though, about your experience in South Africa because I know you also did a safari in Kruger National Park, which I have not yet done. So I would love to hear how that that was as well. Oh, that was absolutely phenomenal. We had the very best safari guide, I do believe, at Kruger. This guy was a lion whisperer. We all joked with him and said that he was just a lion whisperer. We, our first day out on the drive, it, before lunch, we had spotted the big five, the Cape Buffalo, the rhino, the elephant, the lion, and the leopard. Also that morning, we saw the, well, there were two or three lions just sort of milling around and we drove off at, we'd watched them for the longest time and we drove off and all of a sudden our driver, our guide said, let's just go back around this bend. Well, we go back around this bend, you, it's way far away from the lions and here is this Cape Buffalo just sort of strolling along, but he looked a little old or something. Anyhow, our driver said, let's let's just sit here and watch this buffalo and just see what happens. Anyhow, to make a long story short, we watched the buffalo probably for about 20 minutes because we were all like, come on, can we go? He's just walking. He's not doing anything. Uh, but there was a little hill. And so the buffalo started up the hill. And he's like, let's, I'm going to back up and see what happens when he goes over this hill. Sure enough, the buffalo goes up. He's at the top of the hill. And we see that we have somehow circled around to this other part of the land where the three lions were at the base of this hill. And when that buffalo got over, came over the hill, he sort of had some momentum. So he, you know, scurried down the hill and the lions were waiting for him. And they just toyed with him. They tossed him around and tossed him in the air, which I got the best photos in my entire photographing life. <laughs> but I have this photo where this one lion has flung the skate buffalo into the air. And ultimately, the three of them zero in and go in for the kill. And we sat there. We were the only Jeep on those safaris. There's a zillion Jeeps. Anytime there's an animal, we were the only Jeep there. And so the five of us watched the entire kill. We even saw one of the lions when they were done, went off, went back to the pride to bring them back to eat. And it was just the best thing ever. The best thing I've seen on a trip ever. Wow. I went on a safari in Kenya, in Maasai Mara, which is the one place that I've been. I know you've also been to Kenya and Tanzania. I think we we're actually there in the same year, in 2018, although not at the same time. So I would love to also hear, how was your experience in East Africa? 
Well, I enjoyed that, but it was quite different than South Africa because the animals there, it just seems like they're larger numbers of animals. At Kruger, at least for lions and leopards and things like that, we didn't really see them in groups. It was always just a lone animal or maybe two or three at the most. But in Kenya, oh my gosh, we came upon a pride of lions or maybe eight And another time there are four or five and we're driving along. I mean, it was either like you saw a lot or you didn't see any. Right. And then I know you've also done a whole bunch of North Africa as well. You mentioned Morocco. I know you've also spent time in Egypt where I've spent a whole bunch of time. I was based in Cairo for about nine months at one point. And I'd love to hear what your impression was of your time in Egypt. I loved Egypt. It was my favorite place that I had ever been for many, many years. And we did the Nile River cruise. And that in particular was just heartwarming because it just seems like time had not changed on the Nile and the little villages along the Nile, you know, the the way the people dress, their little homes, riding a donkey. On one scene that I, whenever I think of Egypt and the Nile, I always think of as we were cruising down the Nile, this man was pulling a donkey. The lady was sitting up on the donkey, had a little baby. And it was just like a scene of, you know, Oh Holy Night or something with Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus just along there with her riding on the donkey. And everything was just such a step back in time. It just seemed like such. I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. Just step back in time. Of course, until you got to Cairo or Luxor or something. Yeah. Well, I know another one of your favorite destinations is India, which is also one of my favorite places. And I always love to ask people about their experiences in India. So I think you've been there a few times, right? How has your experience been in India? What do you like about India? And how were all those trips for you? I just love India. And I had hoped to go back in 21 and maybe I'll go in 22 because I just want to get back again sometime soon. I just had never been any place like it. And I suppose it's the kind of place that either you love it or you hate it because I just talked to so many people who really, really love it. And then others who would not even consider going again. But everything about it is just so different with the impact of the religions and the sacredness of the cow. I was staying in a hotel in in Jaipur and looked out of my hotel room and there was a cow coming into the parking lot of the hotel. It's almost unexplainable. It's so uniquely different 
Do you have any particular highlights or experiences or things that you saw there that were particularly memorable or, or impacted you? Of course, going to the Taj Mahal. That is just one of the most beautiful buildings in the world. And it's surrounded, but then you enter through that building, that arch building. And just when you turn and you can see the glimmer of it way down the walk there, I got goosebumps. I had goosebumps a whole lot of the time I was at the Taj Mahal. Just that sparkling material they've used to build it. I don't know. My mouth was hanging open. I had goosebumps the whole time I was there. It was so beautiful. I cannot think of another building that just moved me the way the Taj Mahal did. It was just absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, it is a really, really special place for sure. I was I saw the Taj Mahal for the first time in 2017, and it is just uh, something to behold for sure. Did you go to Varanasi? I actually did not. I went to Agra for the Taj Mahal and then have not yet been to Varanasi. Well, Varanasi um, is on the um, on the river and it's a, a holy city. And, you know, people want to make the trip there. And I think it's, it, it, you, they go there and then they bathe in the Ganges and all. And and I think with I've forgotten the whole ritual, but I think when you do that, then in the afterlife, you come back at a higher level. But that's the most fascinating city I think I've ever been in in the world. The um, At night, 24-7, they're doing the fire, the cremations there along the river. But the people making that trek there to bathe. And, and so here are all these people out, you know, totally butt naked in the river. And it's there. that one is really hard to describe because there's so much going on, you know, with the cows everywhere, the people, the smell of the smoke. Uh, when we got to the airport, one of the ladies in our group became ill and she said that she was smelling smoke. Most of us didn't, but the whole city does sort of have this kind of aroma because of all the uh, funeral pyres that are going on over at the river. Right. But the, those holy cities... They are something to behold. That's awesome. There's no comparison anywhere, any place I've been in the world anyway, to Varanasi. So let me ask you this now, Shar. As you're doing all of this solo traveling, can you talk about what that's actually like in terms of your experiences? Are you meeting other people while you're there? How is the social dynamic for solo travelers? And also, what have you learned about yourself through all of this solo travel? Well, I think the solo travel has really been good for my personality because I realize how much I maybe would be sort of in the background of my husband. And while not necessarily letting him make all the decisions or anything, but I could just depend on him and not have to reach out or figure out or anything. I could just be sort of dependent during the trip. And that was sort of relaxing and nice sometimes when I look back on it. But I have had to become a lot more independent. But then with that independence, I've become so empowered by it that I feel so much more confident. And I was confident before, but I'm even more confident now because I know that I can do whatever I want to do be it some kind of big thing or a small thing, whatever it is. If I want to ride an elephant, I can ride an elephant. I don't have to be afraid and just tell my husband, oh, go have fun, ride the elephant. I'll be sitting back here having a glass of wine or something. <laughs> it's just, I think I can do more and I 
push myself more. I'm definitely a whole lot friendlier. I don't think it, he and I really ever made a couple's friend on our travels because we talk with each other. I mean, we'd sit and have dinner with people, but it wasn't like we really kept in touch with them or anything. And now traveling by myself, if, if it's a group trip and there's someone else there that's also alone, if we have compatible personalities, we will end up spending quite a bit of time together. And then, of course, we'd keep in touch afterwards. On a trip to uh, Great Britain, there was a girl from Tasmania who was traveling alone, and she and I really hung out a lot together. And the next year, I did a trip to Australia, New Zealand. Well, she came up from Tasmania and came up to Sydney and spent the day with me there and really took me to a lot of local spots, which was so much fun because she had lived in Sydney before. And so I just had the greatest time being in Sydney with a local. And that wouldn't have happened, you know, with my husband. He and I would have just, you know, got our walking map or whatever and done our thing. But I've got just so many friends now around this country that I've met in my travels and then some folks in some other countries, too. That's awesome. And I also want to ask specifically how your experience has been traveling at retirement age. I mean, I know you've traveled, obviously, at all different points in your life. So right now, how do you find that you're treated around the world in retirement age? And what tips do you have for other retirees who might aspire to do something like this as well? I haven't had a negative experience based on age at all. And if anything, in many of countries, especially I would say in Africa, throughout Africa and throughout Asia, the cultures are such that they have a very high regard for older people. And they're just very, very respectful, really kind and sweet. And I've never had any kind of bad experience. I mean, they're just younger people in particular are just so helpful and just so nice and respectful. There's just no problem with being older, especially in those places. And even in Europe, I haven't ever seen it to be a problem. And I think a lot of retirees do travel throughout Europe, so they've seen a lot of tourists. And so it's, I really don't think it's much of an issue. I really don't. Sometimes as a Black person, I'm concerned a little bit about, you know, how I will be received. Will there be any kind of unpleasant situations. And so far, that's not really been an issue either. I think a lot of places that I've gone, people have assumed I was a native and they approach me speaking Portuguese when I was in Brazil or speaking Spanish when I was in Central America. And kids, you know, I have even if they knew some English, maybe hotel staff or whatever, call me auntie. It's been fun. I have not had any kind of problem with it. When I was in China, it was sort of a nuisance that people, I was with my sister-in-law and she looks a lot like me and we would sense that people were taking our picture. And that happened a lot. When we were on the Great Wall, I was walking by myself because she was walking much faster and I was just stopped. I was leaning against the wall. I was so exhausted. And I realized all of a sudden that this lady was almost leaning on me. She had just sort of inched up close to me and she's there really, really super close, touching my shoulder and everything. And I looked across the way and here her husband is taking a picture of me and her together there. So 
I was sort of tickled that she had been that shrewd about, you know, getting this photo with a black woman. So I handed him my camera because it turned out the tour guide later told me she was Tibetan. So I handed him my camera because I'm like, hey, I've never had a picture taken with a Tibetan. I don't even know if I've ever seen a Tibetan. So get a picture for me, too, while you're taking pictures. So uh, I have this really cool picture of me and her leaning up against the Great Wall. I did something almost identical to that, Shar. I was in Cambodia, right? And and just for context as well, I'm about six foot five. And most oh. Cambodian women are pretty close to five foot even type of height, right? So I'm in Cambodia. I was in Siem Reap. I was going through the temples. And this Cambodian woman, probably, I mean, 60-ish age range, right? She's, this Cambodian woman is there and she's kind of, she doesn't speak English. So she's doing the picture sign with her fingers, right? Like take a picture. And I thought she was asking if I would be willing to take a picture of her in front of the temple or something like that, you know, like, because she appeared to be alone. So I was like, oh, yeah, sure. No problem. I'll take a picture. So I go, yes, yes. I smile at her and stuff. And then as soon as I say yes, she runs over to me, puts her arm around me, looks up, and there's her friend with a camera. (laughs) And she takes a picture of me and this woman in front of the temple. And as soon as that happens, she turns out she was with five other women about the same age. They all line up to get individual pictures with me in front of the (laughs) temple, right? And so after I take the fifth uh, picture... All five of them, are, you know, they start walking away and waving and saying, okay, thank you, you know, and they're smiling. And I was like, oh, no, we're not done yet. I get one now. Right, so I said, right. all five, back this way. So I got five of them, and I do a selfie of me with these five Cambodian women in front of the temple. They're <laughs> laughing, and we all walked away with pictures. So, uh, yeah, 100%. That's absolutely the right move in that situation. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love it. That's awesome. I do want to actually ask you, though, if you can extrapolate a little bit, Shar, on your experience, particularly as a Black traveler and tips that you have for Black folks that may be at the earlier stage of their world travel journey. What advice do you have for them? Well, I would recommend that they go with an open mind, planning to have a great time. As I said, I have not had other than the lady, the Tibetan lady at the Great Wall. And that was not a bad experience, but that's about as negative as an experience we get. And and throughout China, there were people taking pictures of me and sneaking pictures of me and my sister-in-law. But after a while, you know, I don't know. I just, I'm sneaking pictures of them too. I sneak pictures everywhere I go. So if I saw them sneaking, then I would go, oh, I mean, I would pose. I would do a really dramatic kind of, okay, you want a picture of a black woman? Here you go. So, or I'd get them into the picture. I just had fun with it really, because I know that I sneak pictures. So I do not really get upset about that whole picture thing anymore. But I would just suggest to black people to just have an open mind, plan on having fun. I'll tell you the truth. I have not had any kind of problems. I find right here in Indiana, there are places that I go and I am so cautious and so worried about how I'm going to be treated when I get there. I don't have that in my travels. I just haven't had it. There could be, and probably our Black people have, but I haven't had that. I would feel, as a matter of fact, my daughter did have a a rather unpleasant situation, and I think it was Warsaw or something, but I don't know. I've been all over Europe, and I've 
can't say that I have, but I am not looking for it. I go in, you know, with a smile and planning to enjoy myself and enjoy people. And hopefully they speak some English. We can have a little conversation or something. But just be positive, be open minded and go in planning to have a good time and get along with people. Awesome. I want to also ask if you have any particular tips for female solo travelers. Well, my main concern as a female traveler is safety and just totally, you know, just there in the hotel being safe and being safe out on the street and not having um, just not ending up with situations where I don't have anybody else to help me out. Like when I went to Brazil, my sister-in-law and my daughter went and it turned out that there was a problem with my ATM card. And so here I am. I had really no money then once that happened. And fortunately, I was with my sister-in-law and my daughter. And so it it all worked out okay. Uh, But when I started traveling by myself, I thought, okay, what would I have done without them to get some cash from? So now I travel just, you know, I do imagine the worst case scenarios, which mainly would be Something happened health-wise or something happened money-wise. And so I make sure I have a nice little stash of cash that I carry when I travel. I have, you know, several credit cards. I mean, I have it all. I'm prepared. If my purse is stolen, I'm still good. If my fanny pack is stolen, I'm still good. So I just look out for the money situation. And then I have an insurance, a travel insurance for evacuation because my husband got sick on a trip. We were in Costa Rica. My husband passed out on the elevator. When the elevator doors opened, he fell out of the elevator flat on his face and had to be taken to emergency and was hospitalized there in Costa Rica for a while. And anyhow, when he got back, it turned out that was like the beginning of the whole cancer journey with him. But being there with him hospitalized in a country with me not speaking Spanish that well, I learned then too, I think now when I go somewhere, okay, what if that happened to me and I'm by myself? So I do have an insurance that would fly me out or fly my daughter in. And so, you know, you want to get one of those really good, not just your ordinary run-of-the-mill hospitalization travel insurances, but the medevac, that kind of travel insurance. And just things so that then you're free to enjoy yourself. You know, you're just once you got plenty of money and once you got all all your bases covered, then you're just free to enjoy yourself. That's awesome. Let me ask you one more question here before we move into the lightning round, just to sort of build on all of this that you've talked about so far. At this point in your life, why do you continue to travel? What do you get out of it? What does travel mean to you? Oh, my goodness. I think I was just born with wanderlust, and so I have to travel. I absolutely have to travel. It enlivens me. It just energizes me. Travel just gives me life, seeing new places, seeing new things, people, how they do things, where they are, the similarities, the differences. I just love it all. I love everything about it. You know, the journey is the destination. If I'm doing a road trip, I am loving the highway and looking out at the changing terrain as we get to the next state. And it just gives me life. That's awesome. All right, Shar, at this point, are you ready to move in to the lightning round? I'm ready. <laughs> Let's do it. The lightning round. 
All right. What is one book that has significantly impacted you over the years that you'd most recommend people check out? It's a book I read in high school, and I can never remember if my mother somehow gave it to me. Maybe she had seen it at the house of the people she worked for or something, or if I got it at the library at school. But the book was Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. And being a really poor kid, I knew I didn't want to be poor. And so anyhow, in high school, I read this book and really got a lot of the principles of positive thinking and a lot of the principles of just building confidence my self-confidence. And uh, recently, just a few years ago, I was in my nephew's home and he's like 40 something and he was reading the book and he's really, really successful vice president of a company and all. And I'm like, you're just now reading that book. I always thought you read it years ago. It's like, no, I just came across it. And so here he is in his 40s and just really loving the book. And I love the book. I haven't seen the book in ages now, but I just know I learned a lot from it. And I've suggested, I've recommended it to students of mine in, uh, in, you know, a few years ago, I did reread it, but I've suggested it to them. I just, I think it was a powerful book for me. Awesome. If you could have dinner with any one person who's currently alive today that you've never met, who would you choose? I think it would be so much fun and so cool to have dinner with Meghan Markle. I think Megan is just about the luckiest girl in the world. And, you know, she just came from an ordinary family, a divorced family, and just a regular girl. You know, girls want to meet their prince and, you know, all these moms. Oh, you're my little princess. And someday you're going to have a princess. Nobody gets a prince except Meghan Markle. And so and now she has this prince who is head over heels for her. He's given up his spot in the lineup for King of England. It's like, girl, who are you? I just, <laughs> I would just think it'd be fun <laughs> to talk to her. <laughs> All right. What is one travel hack that you use that you can recommend to people? What I would recommend, and only one person I know does is I met this man recently on a trip and he said that, that he did that, but... When I pack, I have all my clothes on hangers. I just use, you know, old wire hangers and everything's hanging up. And so I, you know, have a normal, what, 24, 25 inch suitcase. And so I sort of fold them over in there, one big fold that I've managed to perfect. And so when I get to my destination, bam, I grab them all out hang them up. I got two, three other items in there and I am good to go. I unpack in five minutes. I pack in five minutes. That's awesome. All right, Shar, if you could go back in time knowing everything that you know now and give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what would you say to 18-year-old Shar? I would tell myself at 18 that college is going to be hard and it's set up. There's gatekeeper courses that will keep you from majoring in certain areas and do the work. The work that you put in in college, the major you select and all, will, for most people, for probably 95% of the population, it's going to determine the quality of life that you're going to have forever and your income level forever. So put the work in for those four years and go ahead and major in that thing that you always dreamed of. I wanted to be a French teacher when I got to college and, and took some French. And then, oh, it turned out all the girls... <laughs> 
who were also majoring in French, they were always off to Switzerland or France or somewhere. Well, I wasn't off to any place except Rockford to try to earn some money over breaks. And so I just felt I'm not going to be able to compete with them in the 300 level classes. And I just, I've got to figure out something else to major in. And I just regret so much that I didn't just stick with that and do it and just work harder. And there's just classes like that for everyone and whatever you're majoring in. I know when my daughter was in college, organic chemistry, all the the pre-med majors, I mean, there was probably a gazillion of them, you know, when she started. And then that sophomore year when they took organic chemistry, I mean, it drops down to a few hundred. So those courses are designed to do that. So I just say, work harder in college, miss some of the parties Study occasionally on a Friday night. Don't put it all off to Sunday. Maybe study on a Saturday and major in what you want to major in and have that career you always dreamed of having. That's awesome. All right, Shar, of all of the places that you have now been, what are your top three favorite travel destinations that you'd most recommend people check out? Antarctica. That was awesome. Can't compare to any place. And Brazil, I love Brazil so much. I had never been to a place like Brazil because so many people there look like me. And as a black woman in America, unless you're at a black event, you generally are not in a situation where most people are looking like you. So to go to a country where most people look like me, it was so awesome. It was just so awesome. I loved it. Rio is just to me, the prettiest city in the world. When I went to Rio, I had not been to Cape Town and people kept saying, oh, Cape Town's way prettier. And I'm like, well, I've sure got to see it because I think Rio is the prettiest place ever. So when I saw Cape Town, it's like, yeah, it does give Rio a run for its money. (laughs) But I just love Rio. So, I mean, I love Brazil and India. That's amazing. I am right there with you on Brazil. And I agree with you entirely. I think that Rio de Janeiro is the most spectacularly, breathtakingly beautiful city in the world that I have ever seen. I mean, it yeah. is just amazing. So yeah, Brazil is is just magical. And each time I go back to Brazil, it's so huge, of course, the country is enormous. And right. so I try to see different parts of it. And I go, I, the first time that I went to Brazil, Char, I spent two months in Rio and I literally did not leave Rio to see any other part of Brazil for 60 days because I didn't want to miss a single day of Rio because it was that amazing. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. You know, But then I've gone back subsequently and I've gone to Sao Paulo and I've gone to some of the northern beach spots as well. And it's all is very different vibes in different parts of Brazil, but it's yeah. all just consistently magical and amazing. Are there any particular parts of Brazil that you would particularly recommend other than Rio? Well, I went back and went to Salvador de Bahia, and that uh, has a real strong African presence there. And it was just so different from Rio, but so much fun. The people, you know, once again, you know, the people assumed that, that I was a native, but it had so much more African influence and then the religious influence and all. And so that was a very fascinating city. I would strongly recommend that too. That's awesome. What would you say are your top three bucket list destinations you've never been to and they're the highest on your list you'd most love to see? I would love to go to Mongolia. I think that would really be fascinating. And I had been 
thinking about it and, you know, reading brochures and all and researching it a bit and uh, hadn't really decided on a date. But I feel in a way now that when travel resumes, I've got to definitely go to my bucket list places because I'll never just, you know, have this like three year possible list of trips of where I'll go next year, then the following year. It's going to be month after next, then the month after that, I'm going to knock these out because it's like, while I, you know, have my youth, my health and the government allows us to go, I am going, I am going to Mongolia. And uh, I would love to do a train trip across Canada. I really want to see Banff and, you know, spend some time there, but I just think it would be really cool to do one of those, you know, the trains, you, you see them on magazines, you know, with the window kind of top and all, Uh, do that, you know, say that Western half of Canada. I think that would just, I want to do that when I get old though. (laughs) I don't want to do that right now. I'll do that when I get old. So I I am putting that one on the back burner until I'm an old lady. So, you know, when I can't, you know, do anything more than just sit on a train and look out the window. But also, while I still have some youth left in my body, I'd sort of like to go to Uzbekistan. Seems like a lot of people were starting to post pictures from there uh, in the last couple years, and it looks pretty fascinating. So that's another one. While I can still do climbing up the stairs and up paths and all that, it's like I've got to do this stuff now real fast. That's awesome. Those are really great picks. I just did Mongolia last year. I didn't even do all of Mongolia, but I did some of Mongolia. I actually took the Trans-Siberian Railway, speaking of trains, from Moscow all the way across Siberia to Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia. Wow. And then when we arrived there, we then went through the Gobi Desert and uh, rode camels and stayed in yurts and hiked around the desert and all that kind of stuff. And the landscape was just spectacular. So there's a lot of Mongolia that I still haven't seen. I mean, there's really epic landscape in the Altai Mountains and areas that I haven't been to, and I definitely want to go back. But what I did see was really really quite spectacular. So I think that's a, that's a great pick and I'm happy to give you some tips whenever you're ready to plan that trip. Good. So awesome. All right, Shar, I want you to let folks know how they can learn more about you and follow your travel journey and connect with you. Where can they find you? Well, I'm on Facebook and Instagram, Traveling Black Widow. That is awesome. We are going to link that up in the show notes for this episode, along with everything else that we spoke about. You can find all of that at one place at themaverickshow.com. Just go to the show notes for this episode. Char, this was amazing. This was so fun to chat with you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. This was fun for me. All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you by cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. 
Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber to get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals. Schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.